Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I was reading this week and um, heard about a pastor who um, was preaching through Romans verse by verse like we've been doing this year and he finished chapter 7, and he skipped chapter 8, he skipped chapter 9, he skipped chapter 10, and chapter 11, and went right to chapter 12, and picked up. What would you do if we were preaching through Romans, like we've been doing, and you showed up, and all of a sudden I've skipped two or three or four chapters? I hope you'd be like, I hope you'd ask this question, why? <laughs> why would you skip chapters? Well, that's not what we do here, right? We believe in preaching straight through books of the Bible, that's what we do most of the time, and because we want to make sure we get all of God's word. You know, do you ever go to the buffet and you're like, you know, I'm going to try a little bit of this. I'm going to try a little bit of this. I'm going to try a little bit of this. We're at the buffet of God's word and we want to make sure we study through all of it as best we can. And so we're not going to skip any verses. And, and I actually believe that chapters 8, 9, 10, 11 hold just so many amazing truths for God's people. Um, if I were to skip it, I would be doing all of us a disservice when it comes to knowing God and loving God and knowing his word. So if you found chapter 9, find verse 14. And if you found verse 14, say word. The Apostle Paul writes and he says this. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt then say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that thou repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Father, 
We, as we say every week, we are hopeless and helpless to understand and accept these things unless you help us. By your word, by the power of your spirit, I pray you would sanctify our ears and our hearts that we might hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've been studying with us in Romans, I want to show you how verses 14 through 23, and really the last part of chapter 9 as well, kind of is like a detour. It's kind of a detour here um, because Paul said some things in our last sermon. He said some things earlier in chapter 9 that he knows people are going, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Paul knows that these people that are reading this going, um, I have some questions. And so he, he does this diatribe, what we just read, where he kind of asks a question, like you see in verse 14, and then he answers it. And he does that multiple times, and Paul liked using that way of teaching, question and answer. And these objections that he brings out in chapter 9, I, I, I assume, I imagine, as he went around preaching, he heard these questions. I assume, like the preacher sometimes, you know, we stand at the back door, we talk to people after service. I'm sure Paul, after services, had people come up and say, what about this? You said this. Let me ask you a question. And so he knows people have these questions. And to be honest with you, these very same questions he has here are the same questions many people have asked me when I teach these things as well. And so Paul, I think, takes us right in the right direction. You know, I said this a couple of weeks ago when we started chapter 9. Some people have a struggle understanding things like election and predestination. And other people have a hard time, I think, accepting it. And I think those are two different things there. But I told you all this a couple of weeks ago. When I was growing up, I never heard Romans chapter 9. My, my pastor must have skipped it. Um, some of you I know did hear it. But, but maybe that's something about you. Maybe you just haven't heard sermons like this very often. Maybe you haven't heard these types of teachings. And I want to encourage you just to listen closely to God's word and see what he would say to you. I think all of our goal, and I think this is true in our church, this is one of the things I love about our church. I think our goal is, if I see it clearly in God's word, I want to do my best to believe it. I think that's our goal. I hope it is. That's the goal of a Christian. Our beliefs, our attitudes, and our behaviors should come from what the word of God tells us to do and to believe. And so I hope we'll listen closely to this. Three objections he raises and answers here in this text. Number one, three objections to unconditional election. The first one, does unconditional election mean that God is not fair? Does it mean, does election mean God is not fair? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now, if you look back in the previous verses there, you'll see it says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. A better way, I think, to say that for us is God accepted Jacob, chose Jacob before he was born, the scripture says, and he rejected Esau. And so they're reading this, and Paul says, I know you have the question, is this unfair? I know, that you're, I know that's what you're thinking. Is this fair? Is God just to do these things? And so he goes back and gives us some Old Testament examples, which I love when the New Testament goes back and gives us Old Testament examples. He gives us two right here. The first one is Moses, and he tells us that God is sovereign in those whom he chooses to do his work. 
and in those whom he chooses to save. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, now this is from Exodus 33, by the way, and Moses is talking to God because, you know, Moses had that relationship with God. And in Exodus 33, it says, Moses went to God and said, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, Moses, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim my name before you. And then God said this in Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so as you look at verse 15, you see there a direct quote from what God said to Moses in Exodus 33. This is an example of the sovereignty of God. To say that God is sovereign is to say he is Lord over all. When you say, and we all say this, God is in control, do you say that? God is in control. You know what the truth is? I believe that most people who say God is in control do not actually believe God is in control. Because unless you believe he is completely sovereign over all things, then your view of sovereignty is lower than the scriptural view of sovereignty. The Bible says that God moves the hearts of man and and kings and nations. And he's the one that works in and through all people, bringing his will to be. He's, He's not only sovereign in choosing whom he will, but look at the next verses. And I think this is the harder thing to accept, verses 17 and 18. But God is sovereign in hardening, hardening those whom he chooses. He talks about Pharaoh here. You remember the story of Moses going to Pharaoh, and Moses goes in, you know, knocks on the door, Pharaoh, let my people go. God said my people need to, the people of Israel need to go and worship. And Pharaoh's like, I'm not letting all these slaves go. I need these slaves to work for me. And so you know what God does, right? God sends the plagues, those ten plagues. And throughout those plagues, if you go back and read in Exodus, the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart against God and against Moses and against the people, and he would not let the people go. But in Exodus 9, 12, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, it says, not that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, which is true? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart, or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? The answer is yes. Both, right? Both. But the scripture shows us here in Romans that God hardened his heart for a purpose. For a purpose. This, it reminds us that God is sovereign over whom he chooses. Look, you think, man, poor Pharaoh, that poor guy, God should have cut him some slack. Pharaoh, like you and I, was a sinner who deserved no slack. So we can't say that. Look at verse 18. Because it summarizes what we've seen so far. Therefore, just read it to yourself. Read in your scripture. Read off that screen there. Read it to yourself. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he he hardeneth. To me, the scripture is so plain here that salvation is not based on human will. And some people like fight over that. I, my free will chose God and 
Here's what I want to tell you about your free will. If left to your free will, you would never choose God. Because sin has deprived us, depraved us. Sin has taken our will and said it's totally bent towards sin or pointed towards sin. Broken, ruined. If our will is what it takes to be saved, we will always be lost. So God overcomes that by his will. And some people hear this and say, well, God's not fair. And you may, Some of you are thinking that this morning, I know. Look, someone said this, because I've been talking about this lately. Someone said, everybody deserves a chance to be saved. And I looked at them and I said, actually, nobody deserves a chance to be saved. Which one of those do you believe? Do you believe everybody has a chance to be saved or deserves a chance to be saved? Or do you believe nobody deserves a chance to be saved? I fall on this side. I'm a sinner who does not deserve Christ. Isn't that what grace is all about? An unmerited gift that he gives us? That's what it's all about. Look, someone else said, that's not fair. And I said, well, I don't want God to be fair. If God was fair, I would spend eternity in hell. He's not fair. He's merciful. And he's gracious. And he's just. I hope I can just give you some, again, I hope you see this in Scripture because it's not just in Romans 8 and Romans 9. You're going to see it in other parts of Scripture as well, like Ephesians 1. You're going to see it throughout the New Testament. I'll tell you all this. Once I learned these things, and I was in my early 20s or mid-20s when I learned these things, once I learned these things, I began to see them all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, because my eyes have been opened to truth. If you're thinking it's not fair, listen to me. The same day you were born, think about your birthday. For me, January 17, 1981. Think about your birthday. The same day you were born, did you know there were probably thousands of other people born who will never hear the name of Jesus? That's true because there's 2 billion people at least in the world who live in places that don't even know about Jesus. Think about that. The same day I was born, probably... Hundreds to thousands of people born who will never hear about Jesus. Here's my question. Is that fair? Doesn't seem fair, does it? In our earthly way of thinking about things. Read scripture. Read the Old Testament. Was it fair that God chose and favored Israel over other parts of the world? We we need to change our understanding of fairness. Fairness, someone said, does not consist in treating everyone equally. Fairness consists in giving everyone what he or she deserves. Look, here's why this is important to me. Because, and I hope to to all of us, is we need to see salvation as something God does in our lives. I've seen preachers, I know preachers, who who act like God is, is desperately waiting for people to to say, come into my heart. God is not some broken man or preacher who has to beg us to come to him. Now, as preachers, we should encourage people to come to Christ, and we do that. If you need to be saved, repent, believe. But that's not God's mentality. God is in control. Isn't that what the scripture says? He will have mercy on who? Those he will have mercy. God is not powerless. The truth of Romans 9 reminds us that God is all-powerful. 
all-powerful. It's silly of me to think that my will could keep God out. If God wants to go somewhere, who is going to stop him? If God is going to save a lost soul, who is going to stop him? Could anyone have stopped Jesus from going to Lazarus' tomb and saying, Lazarus, come forth? I don't believe anyone was going to stop him. This encourages me to know how powerful God is. I want you to imagine, I I read this illustration, I liked it. I want you to imagine that in your neighborhood or on your street, there's a guy and he starts going around every other house and he's giving a $1,000. Like words getting around you, like, you know, old guy over here is going to every other house giving a $1,000. And you're like, man, I hope hope I get my thousand. And all of a sudden he skips your house. Oh man, what happened? Why didn't I get the thousand? And so immediately you call 911. 911, everybody else is getting $1,000. I'm not, I didn't get it. What is 911 going to say to you? What's, if you go try to file a police report on that, what are they going to say to you? He's free to give his $1,000 to whoever he wants to give his $1,000 to, right? How much more is the God of the universe free to give his mercy to those whom he wants to give it to? Is God fair? We don't want God to be fair. We want God to be merciful. Let me give you the second objection. And again, it's right in line with the first one, but look at verse 19. And it makes sense. So that will say to me, why does God find fault? For who can resist his will? So the, the thing here is, well, if God does this, then, then how can God put any blame on me or put any fault in me? And I love the response he gives. Look at verse 20. Some of y'all have said this to your kids before. Who do you think you are? You ever said that? You know what? Who do you think you are? That's what Paul says here. When you say that, what kind of tone is that? That's usually a negative tone, isn't it? That's what he says in verse 20. Who art thou? Who do you think you are that you're going to reply back to God with something like this? And then he tells us, God is the creator, and he uses in verse 21 this illustration of God as the potter. What a beautiful picture of God's relationship to his people. He is the potter, and what are we? The clay. I found several references in Isaiah to this. In Isaiah 29, 16, and again in Isaiah 45, 9, the scripture talks about the, how silly it is for the clay to look up at the potter and say, what are you doing with me, potter? Isn't that silly? We know the clay can't talk, can it? But then I love what Isaiah 64, 8 says. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. But as I was reading verse 19, I thought, ma'am, does God really mind if we ask him questions? And the answer, of course, is no. I don't think God minds if we, if we have honest questions out of a pure desire to know him, to understand his word. I think that's what God wants us to do. But the, the attitude here of verse 19 is someone who's judging the creator for what he does. And this is hard for us. 
Has there been things in your life that God has done or allowed that you just didn't like? Absolutely right. There's been great heartaches in all of our lives that God in his sovereignty allowed us to go through. But we must look at him and say, you know what? You're the the potter. I'm the clay. I trust you. Do you believe, church, do you believe Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you believe God is the creator? We believe that, right, as a church. We believe that. If you believe that God is the creator and you dwell on that truth that he made all things, then you, you certainly understand, I have no right, and you have no right to tell God what he can do with his creation, right? I think sometimes our God is too small. But the God of the Bible is not small. He is big, he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, and he is all-sovereign as he controls all things. He has the right to do as he pleases. Jot this down if you're taking notes. Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3 says this, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. This includes saving people. I want you to think about a few examples. Have you ever thought about this? God destroyed the whole world. And he saved Noah and his family. The Bible says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, but we know from Scripture that it was God's plan to save Noah. By the way, Noah wasn't at the ark, was he? Was was Noah at the ark with a shotgun guarding it? Were there a lot of people trying to get on the ark? There wasn't, was there? Just the animals and his family. Because people wouldn't choose to follow righteousness and follow God unless God first put them there. and He did that with Noah. How about Solomon and Gomorrah? God can destroy Solomon and Gomorrah, but spare Lot, right? How about David? You ever thought about David and his, his brothers? They're standing there. They're looking for the next king. And God passed over all those older brothers and chose the youngest, chose David to be the king. God can use Moses to, to deliver the people from Israel And he can harden the heart of Pharaoh. Romans 9. Again, Romans 9. God can accept Jacob before he was born, and he can reject Esau. So if you think of this question, verse 19, how does God find fault? How can God find me with fault or guilt? I want to remind you, and myself, that we are but a lump of clay. And we should never doubt what the potter can do. Because he can do anything. Number three. The final question answered here is, does this election of God serve a purpose? Now, next week, we're going to finish out this chapter. I'm going to show you the, how this relates specifically to Israel, to the nation and the people. And we'll look at that next week. But... Certainly we see here in verses 22 and 23 a purpose. Why would God do this? Why would God make things this way? Well, verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? God 
does things like this to show His wrath and show His power. Every time God hardened Pharaoh's heart, another plague happened. And when that plague happened, the wrath of God was poured out in Egypt. And the people around said, wow, God is a powerful God. Look what he is doing. And the people of Israel said, wow, God is a merciful God that those plagues are not destroying us as well. But God did these things to show his wrath and show his power. Why did God part the Red Sea when they left Egypt? To show his power. Why did God bring water from a rock and bring manna from heaven to feed the people? To show his, his power and his care for his people. I've told you all about one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And God's people are rebelling and they're going against God. And so God sends snakes to bite the people. Remember that story? It's in the book of Numbers. And the snakes bite the people and pe- many people die. So you ask yourself, why would God do that? Why would God ordain something so awful for the people. He did it to show his wrath and his power. And to, he did it because they were rebellious, number one. But not only does God do things to show his wrath and his power, but on a good note, look at verse 17. Look at the last part of verse 17. God did this to Pharaoh that he might, his name might be declared throughout all the earth. God does what he does to show his glory. If you are saved, if you're a Christian, God did that so that you might be a trophy of his grace. Y'all have any trophies at your house? Um, I guess we probably have a few, but at my dad's house back home, I've got a whole box full of little league trophies from when I was a kid. And I remember when I was a kid and I got those trophies, it was the greatest thing ever. I used to have a shelf in my bedroom, some of y'all probably did too, lined up with these little trophies I had. And I, I, I would wipe them off. I, I didn't dust my room, but I would dust those trophies, <laughs> keep them clean. I was so proud, and I would tell people, hey, I, want, I got this playing football in so-and-so year. We didn't win a game, but I got the trophy, <laughs> a participation trophy. And that trophy showed people what I had done, what I had experienced. When the world sees a Christian, God has saved us so that he can, they can look at us and say, wow, look what God has done. Which, which is why sometimes when we're not living the Christian life like we should, we're being a very dusty trophy, right? Which is why we want to live for Christ the best we can so that when people see us, they go, wow, God did a work in that person's life. That person's different. That person's changed. God saved us to show his glory Then look at verse 23. That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before prepared unto glory. Time and time again, God delivered his people Israel. I told you about the snakes a while ago. Remember the rest of that story? God told Moses to get a bronze serpent, put on a stick and raise it real high. And anyone who had been bit by the snake could look at the serpent and they would be healed. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Christ? that we see over in John chapter 3, where it says, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But God does all these things that we might not understand to show his wrath and his power, but also to show his glory and to display his mercy. 
the fact that God saves us from beginning to end shows that he is a glorious and merciful God. So, if anyone is listening this morning and thinks, wow, so what do I have to do to be saved? Nothing? Well, you know, that's not right, is it? The Bible tells us clearly what we must do to be saved. We must repent and believe. Repent of our sins, turning to Jesus and trusting in Him. And some people, some people might say, well, well, if God is elected who will be saved, then, then does that faith even matter? And the answer is, absolutely the faith matters. Because what we go by is what the Word says. And for Paul, we're going to see in chapter 10, Paul is going to say that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul is going to say in chapter 10 that without faith, there is no salvation. And so for Paul, the absolute sovereignty of God and our salvation and the faith of us in God are not two separate things, but they are, as Spurgeon said, they are friends. So our faith, of course, matters. On that same note, someone said to Charles Spurgeon, they said, well, why should we even preach the gospel? Spurgeon said, if I knew who God elected, then I would just go preach to them. But I don't know. So here's who I preach to. Everyone. And whosoever will believe in Christ is one of those whom God has chosen. And so we proclaim as a church here, I proclaim to you as someone who believes in God's sovereignty, that we still must absolutely preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're lost this morning, you must absolutely repent and believe to be saved. And so we do missions, and we do evangelism, and we point people to Jesus. It changed my preaching when I come to realize, and I'd preached for years before I realized it, it changed my preaching when I realized I am just a vessel who makes an outward sound to your ear, but only God is the one who can change your heart. I used to think in all my sermons back when I was younger, I better get the right story to make you emotional so that you might turn to Jesus. Or when I was preaching to teenagers, I would think, man, I've got to get down on their level and say some certain things to teenagers so they'll turn to Jesus. And one day as God revealed scripture to me, I thought, wow, my job is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God's job, which he does perfectly, is to save lost souls. That's why at our church, we don't try to manipulate people to salvation. We try to proclaim the gospel and let God do what God does. It's a humbling experience to realize some of these truths in Romans 8 and 9. I remember when I was studying these things for the first time, and I was humbled because I realized for the very first time, even though I was already a Christian, I realized Wow, I have not an ounce of boasting in me, not an ounce of credit for me. I can't rely on me. It's a humbling doctrine. It's a praiseworthy doctrine. When you believe that, when you know that God has saved you from beginning to end, you know that he deserves all the praise, all the credit, all the glory. Maybe some people don't praise God like they should, Because somewhere deep down, they think they earned their salvation. You see, once you understand 
what we're talking about here in Romans 9. Your first thought is, why didn't God do this for someone else? Your first thought is, why, God, did you do this for me? Why? I don't deserve it. And you begin to see the word grace differently. That God shed his grace on your life completely. And you can't help but love him, trust him, and serve him. I heard this story, and I want to share it with you, about a pastor who had a man in his church was a heart surgeon. And for some, some reason, the pastor wanted to see a surgery on a heart, and so the, the doctor worked it out. And so he was able, and this is a true story, but he was able to go and, and kind of watch this surgery. And the surgeon was doing his thing, and he did the work on the heart, and then the heart had, had stopped beating at, at some point. And so the surgeon started doing what he was supposed to do to get the heart going again, and the, the pastor was watching. He could tell he was like, "This is something's not right. Something's not going right here." And the doctor's doing his, he's doing the things he does, and, and the pastor's like, "Man, what's happening?" And so he said, "The doctor did something that he just he was just blown away." He said, "The doctor leaned over to the patient, who of course is not not a, not awake at this point, and the doctor says, "Hey, I fixed your heart." but I need you to tell your heart to beat again. Which I thought to myself, did that work? And the story goes, the pastor said it wasn't much long after that, the heart kicked back up. And I was like, did that lady, unconscious, (laughs) tell her heart to beat again? And I thought, no, of course not. (laughs) Here's why I share that story with you. And because this helps me. As sinners... We're all born as sinners into this world. We are dead in sin. Our heart is hard as Pharaoh's. A heart of stone, the Old Testament says. Again, a dead heart, Ephesians 2 says. And we can tell our heart to beat again all day long, but it won't happen. Our heart will only beat again when God makes it beat again. Spiritually speaking, Has God brought you to life? He's the only one who can save a lost soul. No matter who you are or what you've done, God can save you. And all those, according to Romans 8, whom He foreknew, whom He predestined, who He gave His Son to die for, it is those He will call And he will take them from darkness to life, darkness to light, and from death to life. You see, these are doctrines we're studying, and they can get kind of deep in some ways. But when it comes down to it, it's about God saving our souls. And it's about how God saved our souls. And it's about giving him 100% of credit for saving our souls. Let's pray.